Well, good morning, Summit Church. I want to welcome you at all of our campuses. I do appreciate uh, those of you who have braved the weather conditions to be out here. I uh, told the services last night that um, on weekends like this one, usually the only people that come to church fit into one of two categories. Either they're really young or uh, they're from the north. Uh, and so it's a shout out to you northerners and for those of you that uh, didn't make it this weekend, uh, for you Southern Born Summit members who are listening to this uh, message by podcast, uh, I want to tell you that this is why the entire nation makes fun of us uh, here in the South because 10 flakes of snow will keep 2,000 Summit people away from church. Uh, so for these of you guys that are, are here, um, I appreciate that so much. For those of you that are normally here on Saturday night that I'm seeing this uh, Sunday morning, uh, good to see you guys as well. Um, hey, as we get started here this morning, there's um, one major thing I want to make sure that you are aware of um, that will be talked about at all of our campuses uh, this morning, and that is uh, on Tuesday night, we are having something we do once a year called our Vision Night. Now, several times throughout the year, we try, or actually just a handful of times, we try to get the entire church body together um, just to, to be together as a congregation and not spread all apart. And this is one of those times, um, once a year. We, we come together to celebrate um, what God has done over the past year, um, some of the major milestones that we've seen, the fact that we've seen um, about 500 people baptized uh, throughout the course of this year, um, to talk about some of the, the people that have been sent out to see some of the incredible things that have happened through some of our ministries, and just to thank God for those. And then to hear from the leadership of the church about where um, we think the church is going in the next year. Um, and then to take time just to pray about those things that that evening Tuesday evening will be dominated by prayer um, Because we're wanting to say God. This is where we think we're going and this is what we want you to give to us um, So I want to ask you to be there. Uh, this is not something for you know The upper 10% of you that are super committed to the church um, This is for anybody who would say that yeah, I'm not just a spectator at the summit church I'm part of this body you need to be here on Tuesday night from all of our campuses at the Briar Creek Auditorium just so we can celebrate um, and, and, and get on the same page about what's happening. Um, so I want to ask you to do that, okay? Uh, one of the things we're going to talk about there is, is we're going to celebrate um, how far we've come already in our Christmas missions offering. At this point, we are about halfway to our goal at about 150000 or 300000 You're like, well, wait a minute. Is that, you know, did we miss the goal? No. Um, one thing I know after pastoring you people for eight years uh, is that you're always about three weeks. Uh, it takes about three weeks for us to actually get on the same page. Every year at this time, this is about where we are. And uh, every year for the last several years, we have made or exceeded our goal. And I have no reason to think we're not going to do it this year. But we're going to celebrate that on Tuesday night together. Um, I will say for those of you that are still processing um, how you're giving, I'll just tell you that this is my wife and my favorite thing that we give to all year long. I love just giving to the church, generally speaking. I love what this church is doing in the community. Um, but when we, when we write that check every year around Christmas time for the Christmas missions offering, not to make it overly dramatic, but just thinking about the people that are going to hear about Jesus um, through the sacrificial giving of you and, and, and us, uh, to think about the poor that will be lifted out of poverty, to think about the orphans that will be brought into the kingdom of Christ, what better way to say thank you to Jesus at Christmas time for his unspeakable gift than to give out of what God's given you to see Jesus taking the people who don't know him and haven't heard about him? I want you to invest generously. And I use the word invest on purpose because this is an investment in the kingdom of God. And I want you to see this go forward. Um, where would you be without Jesus? Where would you be without Jesus? And the answer is you'd be at exactly the same place that millions of people are in the world without you and me. Um, that's why we give sacrificially, and that's why we do it at Christmas time. Um, so I want you to think about that, okay? Um, Tuesday night, I want to see you there, all right? If you have your Bible, I want you to take it out. I want you to open it to 1 Samuel. We're going to begin in, verse, in chapter 28. For the last several weeks, we've been in a series called The Search for a King, which has been a study through the life of David. And uh, one of the things that we're going to look at this weekend, a theme that is recurring throughout the Bible and that is the question about whether it is possible for you to be very religiously active, to be very active in the church of God, and to not really know God at all. Now I want you to hear exactly the way I said that. I don't mean, that, is it possible for you to come to church twice a year at Christmas and Easter, and to be a general hypocrite throughout the year and not know God. I mean, is it very possible for you to be active in the church, like part of the ministry team? Somebody who comes every week, somebody who gives sacrificially, is it, 
really possible to be very active in the kingdom of God, but not really to know God at all? And that question may not make a lot of sense to you until you stop and just think about it. I mean, is it possible to be married and to live with somebody for 40 years and never really know them and love them at all? Yeah. You know, just walking through a maternity ward automatically make you pregnant? No, right? I mean, walking through that doesn't mean that you have the reality of many of the people that are in there. You know, does owning a Mac computer automatically make you cool? No, right? Just annoying for a lot of you. I mean, that's kind of the, you know, it's just, it doesn't mean that that reality's become you. And one of the, the things, one of the surprising things that the Bible brings up a lot is that religious people often don't know God at all. In fact, here's what's really surprising, is that sometimes it's much harder for religious people to know God than it is for non-religious people. That's all through the Bible, and that's what you're going to see today. And I really want some of you to wake up and pay attention to this. It is very possible to be very religious and to not know God at all. And we're going, to see, we're going to see in graphic detail today exactly what that looks like. And we're going to see the tragic end of it. And we're going to see something in the life of Saul that really ought to scare us to death. First Samuel 28. Now, let me tell you this. A lot of times people who aren't Christians, you don't normally come to church, feel like that what we Christians do in church is we all get together and we all you know, talk down to everybody else who's not in church. Um, well, if you're like that, if you're not a person who regularly comes to church, here's what's going to happen today. You're going to overhear a family discussion you just walked in on an awkward family argument um, where I get to go through a passage of Scripture that is directed not at you but at us. And you get to hear me say something to all of us that you probably always wanted to say yourself. I get to yell at everybody in Jesus' name. You probably never said amen in church and you'll say amen this morning as you hear me talk about some of the massive dysfunctions among um, other believers. So you're in for a treat today. All right. First Samuel chapter 28. We're going to look at the end of Saul. First Samuel 28. And then we're going to end the book in first Samuel 31. All right. 28. We're going to begin in verse three. Now Samuel, who was the prophet of God in Israel, had died and all of Israel had mourned for him and buried him at Ramah, which was his hometown. Now Saul had put the mediums, which mediums are people who communicate with spirits. They're the ones who write horoscopes. They're the ones who answer the one nine hundred calls. Um, God, Saul had taken those people and the necromancers, which is kind of a weird word, but it just means people who talk with the dead. He had put them out of the land. They all lived in a place called Hogwarts. Now, uh, Saul was the one who had done that. And, and, and the point here, by the way, uh, is that that was a good thing that Saul had done. He'd rid the land of demon worship. Um, that was a very good thing that he had done. That's how you should hear that. Verse four, the Philistines assembled and came in and camped at Shunem. When Saul saw the army, of the Philistines, he was afraid. His heart trembled greatly. Here you see a recurring theme in Saul's own life, and that is fear. Fear. Fear is the present reality of every person who is separated from God. Um, fear of the future. Fear of the uncertain. Fear of death. Fear of the unknown. Fear of what everybody else thinks about you. Fear of going bankrupt. Fear of unexpected problems. Right? When you have the presence of fear in your life, it means that God's not in the right place. 1 John 4.18 says that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. When you know God, God loves you perfectly, and that drives out all fear because God doesn't know any other way to love Him perfectly and completely. And so the presence of fear means the absence of God. And I'm talking to all kinds of people involved in church. I've been a pastor for eight years. I know this, that people in the church are often dominated by fear. Fear of what's happening in the marriage. Fear of what's going to happen to their children. Fear of what's going to happen to them tomorrow. Fear of dying. Fear of what everybody else is thinking about you. And Saul is dominated by fear, and that is like smoke from a fire that is pointing you to a massive problem, a fire in your relationship with God, because the presence of fear means the absence of God. Verse 6, when Saul, Saul inquired of the Lord to what to do in this situation, the Lord did not answer him, not by dreams, not by Urim or by prophets. And he's like, wait a minute, what is Urim? Urim is the Old Testament, Old Testament equivalent of the magic eight ball. All right, just to, to put it bluntly. Urim, the, 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 what scholars tell us is that Urim and Thummim were two rocks. Um, Urim and Thummim, and on both sides of both rocks, on one side was written yes, and the other side was written no. And when somebody wanted to hear from God, they would go to the priest, and the priest would take, the high priest would take the Urim and the Thummim, and he would throw them down. And if both sides came up yes, then that meant that God was telling you, yes, absolutely, get on it. And, but if both of them came up no, it meant, you know, no, don't do this. Um, if one of them came up yes, one of them came up no, if it said yes, no, that meant there's no clear word from God. And then if they came up no, yes, that meant there was no clear word from God. And so what it means is that Saul had gone to the priest and said, what is the word from God in the situation? The priest threw down the rocks and it said, yes, no. 
then no, yes, then yes, no, then no, yes, no, yes, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes. And finally Saul's like, how come he's not giving me an answer? Supernaturally, God is not answering. It's like when you shake the magic eight ball and all you get is that little ask again later. Has that ever happened to you? Right? You shouldn't do the magic eight ball for guidance, but you know, you know what I'm saying, right? Like ask again, and you do that 300 times in a row, you might think something's going on. God is supernaturally not giving Saul an answer to this Urim and Thummim. Some of you, your life just changed right now because you're like, where can I buy the Urim and Thummim? Right? We only sell them at the Saturday night service, which is why you got to go to that to get those, okay? Just throwing that out there. Um, no, for real. I mean, this is not, uh, this is an Old Testament thing that doesn't carry over to the New Testament, so do not ho- go home and get you a couple rocks and write yes, no, on them and think God's going to lead you that way. That was an Old Testament provision, but there's no New Testament reality. All right, Saul is being frustrated because God won't answer him. Verse 7, then Saul said to his servants, well, seek out a woman who is a medium or a witch that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, behold, there's a medium at Endor. And Saul was like, Endor, Endor, isn't that the place where all the Ewoks live? And his servant said, yes. And he said, well, let's go. And so Saul disguised himself as a Jedi warrior and put on other garments and went Uh, If you read Hebrew, you would see all this written right in there. Um, And two men went with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Well, the woman says back to him, the irony of this is terrific. She says, well, surely you know what Saul has done. How he's cut off the medium and the necromancers from the land. Why are you then laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? Can we stop here for a minute and just talk about how ridiculous this is? Here is a woman. What kind of sorceress is this? Here's a woman who supposedly sees the future, and she can't even see through the costume of the guy that's right in front of her. I mean, Saul, remember he was head and shoulders above everybody else, which means in a land where everybody's five foot three, he's six foot nine. And she can't even see that this is Saul. This stuff is always fake. You ever watch this stuff online, you know, like at night at like 1.30 at night, these 1-900 calls, they call into these, you ever watch that? You probably shouldn't, but if you ever do. It's all, it's the most ridiculous conversations. It's like, you know, Brian Regan um, talks about, he's like, you know, um, like uh, the, the, the sorceress is like, um, you know, would you, have you ever had a grandparent? Yes. <laughs> How did you know? Well, you know, did they die? Yeah. Did they die of natural causes? Well, actually, no, he got shot in the face. Well, naturally, he's dead. You know, and you're like, seriously, this is like, you know, telling the future. This woman is a fake. She's a fraud. It's like all these people are. The Saul is there in front of her and he says, okay, I swear to you by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall ever come upon you for this thing. I was going to make a joke about this, but this horror of this. Here is Saul trumping God. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about the punishment for witches. I got you covered. Don't worry about it. Verse 11. Then the woman said, well, who shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. I'm not sure the wisdom of bringing up Samuel in a situation like this. I feel like if you're going to conjure up somebody through the dead through a Satan worshiper, Samuel is not your guy. Um, verse 12, <laughs> this is awesome. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. She's like, ah! She's not used to this working, right? I mean, she, you, she's like, usually I just blow a little smoke and play some Enya, and then I move the Ouija thing around and I make some stuff up. You know, she's caressing her crystal ball and she's like, oh, crystal. Ah! You know, Saul, Samuel comes out and Saul's like, what'd you see? What'd you see? And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? Wait, you saw. There you go, Einstein. Now you're seeing the present clearly. Verse 13. Then the king said to her, don't be afraid. At this point, she had to be like, what are you talking about? I mean, I got the, I got the ghost of a dead prophet who was known to hack the enemies of God to pieces in front of everybody's eyes, and you're telling me not to be afraid as if I'm afraid of you at this point? You know, she's like, that's not really what I'm worried about. He's like, sure, sure, sure. just tell me what he says. And the woman says to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, well, it's an old man, and he's wrapped in a robe, and he looks really ticked off. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage, which has always been Saul's problem, hadn't it? is that he pays more respect to Samuel than he does to God. This next part is great. Verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, why did you disturb me, bringing me up? And Saul's like, man, look, I'm really sorry to bother you. I know you're really busy being dead and all, but, but I am in great distress. For the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me, and he answers me no more, not by prophets or by dreams or by the little Urim and Thummim thing. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. So Samuel says, verse 16, let me get this straight, Saul. 
God has turned away from you. And so you're asking me for advice? God is your enemy? And rather than reconciling with God, you're looking for favors from me? Now at this point, Saul probably said, well, yeah, but I asked the Lord and he wouldn't tell me anything. And Samuel said, that's right. Because what the Lord wants to hear from you is repentance. See what he says in verse 17? You see, Saul, the Lord took the kingdom out of your hand and gave it to your neighbor David because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and you did not carry out his wrath against, um, against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Saul has never really repented of what he has done with Amalek and how he's lived his life. He's just trying to, to go on and use God to help him get out of a jam while ignoring the fact that he is not really surrendered to God and living out God's will. There's a lot of people who wonder why God won't hear their prayers. And it's because of some area of unconfessed sin in your life. They're like, you're like, God, why won't you talk to me? And God is like, well, we were having this conversation 15 years ago. And you walked out on that conversation. You've never come back to that conversation. If you want to talk, we're going to go back to that conversation. And you wonder, why is it that God is not hearing my prayers? It's because you walked out on the conversation that he's got to have before he'll hear your prayers. And that is the conversation where you confess, trust, and surrender to him. Saul walked out. Saul's never repented on that. And that's why God won't hear him. God, yes, will abundantly pardon. But you've got to come to God on his terms. God will not be used as your pimp. Verse 19, Samuel says, Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. That is the last thing you want to hear from a ghost, right? You're going to be with me in the grave. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. Verse 25, then he arose and went his way that night. Saul, repent. Saul, what are you doing? I told you before that crisis is not always the best time to seek God. Because here you see that Saul is crying out to God, but he's not crying out to God for God. He's crying out to God to get him out of a jam. He's not coming to God on God's terms. He's trying to use God to get him out of a situation. You see, in a crisis, this is why I told you this, in a crisis you're usually desperate, you're usually gullible, and you'll grab a hold of anything that you think will keep you afloat. You're not necessarily trusting God. You're not necessarily surrendering to his plan. And the proof of that is that as soon as you're out of that crisis, you go back to the way you were before you got into the crisis. Hear me. I'm not saying you should not seek God in a crisis. I'm just saying you need to ask God why you're seeking him. Are you trying to use him to get you out of a jam? Or are you realizing that God is God? And he's the only thing you should trust in and the only thing that you should give your life to serve. A lot of people go through deathbed conversions because they're scared of hell. I realize that hell and judgment are compelling reasons to seek God, but you can't just use God to get you out of hell. A lot of people go through deathbed conversions, and if they ever got off their deathbed, they would go back to the way they always were, and that is not repentance. Conversion is not just fleeing from hell. Conversion is fleeing to God. That write this down. A repentance that would not change you in life won't save you in death either. A repentance that will not change you in life won't save you in death either. Are deathbed conversions real? Some of them, yeah. But a lot of them, no. Because a lot of them are made because somebody's scared of what's about to happen. And conversion to God is repenting of the fact that you've trusted in yourself all your life and you've delighted in yourself rather than God. And a repentance that wouldn't change you in life if you got off your deathbed will not save you in death either. Which is why I say crises and deathbeds are not good times to seek God. Because your mind is so muddled and desperate in that point, you might seek God for the wrong reason. Again, I'm not saying don't seek God in, your, in a crisis or in a deathbed. I'm just saying you've got to ask, am I doing this because I recognize that God is God? Or am I doing this because he's going to get me out of this situation? He's going to save me from hell. That's not what God takes into heaven. What God takes into heaven is people who are converted to him. People who trust in and delight in him. Now I want to take you to 1 Samuel 31 and I want to show you how Saul's life ends the tragic way. But as you're flipping over the three chapters to 1 Samuel 31, I want to point out something to you. Remember a few weeks ago I told you that rebellion, even small areas of rebellion is like, are like witchcraft in God's sight and small areas of compromise are like idolatry. And I told you that many of us have trouble really believing that because we look at the areas of our life where we're not obeying God and we're like, well, they're not that bad. 
I mean, yeah, God, I mean, you know, sure, we're sleeping together, but we're adults, we're responsible, we love each other, we're committed. I mean, I don't understand what the big deal is. It's not that bad. Yeah, God, we're not tithing, but, you know, it's not like we're robbing a bank or anything. Here you see that what God said about Saul's disobedience was not a poetic image, and it wasn't just an exaggeration. Saul's small compromises have grown into full-orb dependence on the demonic. That always happens. I know you hear that and you're like, no, 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 I've never prayed. I've never gone to it. Like, you know, I never called one of these 100. You might never pray to Satan or you might never visit a witch, but something will begin to play the role of God in your life. You see, here's how it works. Small rebellion still separates you from God. It, it, it's like the links of a chain. If you were, you know, being towed by another car via a chain, not you personally being dragged on the ground, but your car was being, you know, towed uh, via a chain. How many of those links need to break before you're completely separated from that car? One, Right? So one small act of rebellion removes you from the assurance and the security of walking with God. And what that does is it creates a void in your life, and into that void, something will begin to play the role of the supernatural. Something always plays the role of the supernatural in your life. Something is always ultimate. Now, you're like, well, not me, because I'm not really religious. I mean, you know, I don't worship anything. Maybe you're not religious, but something in your life will always have a godlike quality. There's something that you turn to as your source of security, something you depend on for guidance, something you lean on for happiness and fulfillment. I've explained multiple times here that what you worship is whatever you depend on for life, for happiness, for fulfillment, for security, whatever you could not live without. If that thing is anything but God, that is idolatry of the worst kind. And it's even following Satan because ultimately Satan is the author of all self-worship. Many of you have never gone to a witch or done a seance, but you treat money like a god, right? You won't be generous with it. You serve it. You worry about it. So if you treat romance like a god, you'll do anything to get it. You get it. You do anything to keep it. You'll do anything to, you know, you, you worry and obsess about it, and you, you're angry at God for not giving it to you. Some of you treat your family like a god. You're like, well, family's a good thing. Sure it is, but not when it becomes a god thing. We have people, listen, I hear this story all the time. In fact, it's happened recently, where we got some young professional in this church who, after graduating from college, feels like God is telling them to go serve him overseas. And they will go talk to their parents, who raised them in church, who were very active in church, who will say to them, no, you are not going to take you, my child, and your grandchildren one day and live overseas. You will not do that. Listen to me. Those people are not Christians. I don't care how much they went to church and how much they gave. And if he was chairman of the deacons, he's not a Christian because he hasn't answered the ultimate question of Christianity. And that is, who is your ultimate allegiance to? Is it to your family or is it to God? Idolatry is idolatry, whether it's idolatry of a good thing or a bad thing. Right? And he may not be a Satan worshiper per se, but he's worshiping something in the place of God. And that's idolatry. See, what you're seeing is it's not an exaggeration. Either God is God with no conditions and qualifications, or you're an idolater and in the path of Satan. Is that harsh? It's just that there's no middle ground. None. Let me, let me, let me show you the end of Saul. 1 Samuel 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa, just like Samuel had said. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. Saul watches his army fall apart. Saul watches his sons die right in front of his eyes, including Jonathan. Parents, make no mistakes. Your children will suffer for your small areas of disobedience and for your areas of idolatry. Saul watches all this happen. Then the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Verse 4, then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Let these, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Y'all, to the end, Saul is still primarily worried about what other people are going to do and say about him. Don't you feel like at this point his mind would be directed to the one that Samuel said had become his enemy? But Saul, his whole life, is more obsessed with what other people are going to say and do about him than he is about God. But his armor bearer wouldn't do it because he was afraid. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also took his sword and died with him. Verse 6, thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and his whole army 
on that day together. And when the men of Israel, talking about the people that lived in the cities, the civilians, when they saw what had happened, and they saw that the army had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in their cities. Do you see what just happened? Saul was supposed to drive the Philistines out of the land. Instead, what he's done is lost ground to the Philistines, and now the Philistines are living in the cities of the Israelites. The next day, verse 8, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the Philistines, the land of the Philistines, to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They took Saul's armor and put it in the temple of Ashtaroth, their primary deity, and they fastened his body to the walls of Bethshad. That's how the whole book of 1 Samuel ends. One of the, commenta- uh, the commentaries I was reading said this. This is how it ends. And now it was night, and the headless bodies of Saul and his sons, deserted by all, swung in the wind on the walls of Bethshad, amid the hoarse music of vultures and jackals. Let me say that again. That's how 1 Samuel ends. 1 Samuel is the primary account of Saul, the king, that was chosen by Israel because they didn't trust God. Saul, the perfect candidate for king. Saul, the guy they put all their hopes on who turns out to be a coward that consults demons in a time of trouble. He doesn't defeat the Philistines. In fact, he loses ground to them, and the Philistines come and now live in the Israelite cities. Saul's last act is to watch his own sons die and then commit suicide. Then his armor is stripped and put on display in the temple of a Philistine god, not to show how strong the Israelite god was, Jehovah, but to show how strong the Philistine god was. And then his body is fastened up on a wall of a Philistine city to hang there in shame until the birds eat away his flesh. It is impossible for the Bible to give a more devastating end to a life. This is Israel's king. And what's really ironic is that all this happens in the same geographic location where Saul had been crowned. In fact, scholars tell us that within eyeshot, from where Saul's body was hanging, you could see the place where he had been crowned king. Do you remember all the promises that were spoken over Saul when he was crowned? Let me remind you of one of them. Chapter 10, verse 1. I'll put it on the screen. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head, and he kissed him. And he said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? You shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you. So much promise, such utter disappointment. In the same place where all those promises were spoken, there Saul's body hangs, stripped, forsaken by God. What a tragedy. Saul's problem was never the Philistines. Saul's problem was never Goliath. God could easily destroy the Philistines. God could take care of Goliath with a leather strap and a rock. Saul's enemy was Saul. Because Saul could never defeat the enemy within himself that would not trust God rather than himself and would not delight in God rather than himself. And because Saul chose that path, Saul faced a destitution that he did not have to go to. There are a few things that we need to notice about Saul. I would encourage you to write these down and think about them throughout the week. Number one, Saul kept up religious practices without ever knowing God. Saul kept up religious practices without ever knowing God. Saul did a lot of good things, did he not? He purged the land of witches and wizards. He fought God's battles against the Philistines. You're like, well, he didn't fight them very well. Yeah, but he's at least on the right team. I I mean, to put it in our terms, Saul was in church. Saul was not just a spectator in church. Saul was on a ministry team. He volunteered. Saul gave to the church. Saul went on mission trips. Saul was a good dad. Saul raised Jonathan. Jonathan would have made any of us proud to have us a son. He was a good dad. He was a good guy. He was religious. He was active in the church. He even prayed to God when he was in a jam. There were two essential things that Saul was missing. Number one, trusting God. He never learned to trust God, and that was shown by his failure to fully yield his life to God. You know, 1 Chronicles is a book. In the Old Testament, that's a parallel account, runs side by side with 1 Samuel. And uh, the, the writer of 1 Chronicles says this about Saul. Look at this, fascinating. Chapter 10, verse 13. Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord, but he consulted a medium. 
seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. And you're like, well, wait a minute. He did seek guidance from the Lord. Remember the whole Urim and Thummim thing? Yeah, but he wasn't seeking God in those situations. He was seeking a way out of a jam. He wanted to use God. A guy named Larry Crabb, Christian psychologist, said, our problem is that we don't want to find God to know him. We want to find him in order to use him to make our lives work. How many people am I talking to in church because they don't want to go to hell? And they think God is somehow instrumental in A, keeping them out of hell, and B, making your life come together. And you're like, in order to have a strong family, in order to be a respectable person, i got to be in church. i got to walk with God. I'm a college student. I know that if I'm going to get where I need to go in life, I need God as a part of my life. And you're using God to try to get something from Him. God will not be your pimp. He will not be somebody that you come to and say, get me out of this. And he's like, all right, you know, say the magic words. Bam, there it is. You have to seek God for God. You have to come to him because he's trustworthy. You have to come to him because he is life's most valuable possession. And you yield everything to him and you surrender to him fully with no conditions, no reservations. Saul didn't trust God. That's the first problem. The second problem is very much like it. And that is he didn't, he wasn't satisfied with God. Saul always needed something else beyond God. You, you know, when God told him, don't try to take all the stuff from the Amalekites, Saul wouldn't hear it. He was like, no, I got to have, the, 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 have all the spoils of the Amalekites. I got to be you know, enriched as a king. I got to have Agag as my prisoner because God was not enough. It wasn't enough for Saul to be God's king. He also needed to have a lot of stuff. After God took the kingdom from Saul and said, I'm going to give it to David, you know, Saul still at that point had a chance to repent. He had a chance for his life to end well. But Saul said, no, no, I will be king. And God, if you will not let me be king, I'll make myself king. And so Saul turns his attention on David and spends 10 years trying to hunt David down and kill him because that's the threat to his kingdom. Has that ever happened to you? God sovereignly tells you no in something that you really want. And you say to God, no, no, I will be married. I will be successful. I will be famous. I will be rich. And if you're not going to give it to me, I'm going to get it myself. One of the sure signs, if that's what you're doing, is you start to have jealous feelings toward whoever plays David in your life. David is simply somebody that God has given all the things that you want. God has given them to them, but not you. And so you start to hate that person. You're jealous of them. You're obsessed over them. And deep in your heart, if you look, you know it has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with you, that you're just not satisfied with what God has chosen for you. And so you look at somebody that has what you want, and you hate them, and you resent them. Saul wasn't satisfied with God. Do you know, listen, all of your spiritual problems, all of them, all of them, go back to one of two sources. Either you don't know how God feels about you, or you don't value that enough. Either you don't know how God feels about you or you don't value that enough. That is the source of any anxiety, any fear, any stress, any jealousy, any rebellion. All of it goes back to one of those two problems. That's why we say the gospel is the remedy for rebellion. Because in the gospel, you see how God fills you and you see what a treasure that he is. And if you would ever get your mind around the gospel, it would release you from all the fear and anxiety that you live with. And it would snap the rebellion that you can't seem to shake. You know, there's a, um, there's a passage It's always scared me to death in Matthew chapter 7. I've preached on it here before. Matthew 7 says in the last day that Jesus will look on a great throng of people and it says that many will say to him in that day, Lord, Lord, we're here. Lord, didn't we do all kinds of awesome stuff in your name? Remember how we were acting in our church? Remember that Christmas mission offering that we gave? Remember that mission trip we went on? We actually prayed for people on that mission trip and they got healed. It was awesome. I spent my whole life serving in, in a Christian ministry. Lord, we're here. Jesus will look back at him and say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. I used to hear that passage as a teenager, and I always heard in that passage, I always heard percentage. I always heard that that meant that God was only going to take the upper, like, say, 20%. You know, that, 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 that he was going to look at all these people and be like, okay, 80% of y'all were worthless, but 20% of y'all I'm happy with, so y'all come with me. And I always made up my mind, every time I heard that passage, John, that I was going to be in that upper 20%. I was going to give an upper 20%. I was going to serve God an upper 20%. I was going to read my Bible an upper 20%. You know, I was going to save sex for marriage an upper 20%. I was like, shoot, upper 20%. I'm going to be an upper 5%. 
I'm going to be like the A minus Christians and above. I'm going to be in that bracket right there. And he's never going to tell me, depart from me. That, listen, Jesus did not say, depart from me because you didn't do enough for me. He says, depart from me. You never knew me. You never understood how loving and trustworthy I was. That's why you never really yielded control of your life to me because you never heard my voice in your soul saying, you, you, you are my child. You can trust me. You never responded to the warmth of my presence and just rested in the magnificent fatherhood of a God who would never leave you or forsake you. And so your life was consumed with fear and worry and rebellion because you never really knew the love of God. You never knew his love and his grace. Has that ever happened to you? I'm not asking you how religious you are. I'm not asking how long you've been in the church. I'm asking, have you ever felt the warm, resounding voice of Jesus Christ in your soul that says, you, you're my child. You see, when you hear that, that will create in you obedience. It's not that you'll just do that and move on. You'll start to obey. But the foundation of Christianity is not you getting busy serving God. The foundation of Christianity is you knowing God. And you know God not because of what you do for him, but because of what he has done for you and receiving that and resting in it and delighting in it. The gospel is that God could not love you any more than he does right now and there's nothing you can do to make yourself more acceptable to God because he did everything in Christ and all you do is rest and receive in that and cherish it and your life transforms. I never knew you. You never knew and trusted and arrested in my love and I am talking to a whole slew of people who are religiously fervent but have never acknowledged that voice deep in their soul. Saul was religious. He didn't know God. Here's number two. Tied very closely to it. Saul did not know how to repent. Saul didn't know how to repent. Saul looked like he would repented. He said he was sorry. He cried. Remember chapter 15? He cried. Oh, he cried. He did religious stuff. He never really repented. He just went through the motions. Here's the tragic part. He thought he'd repented. And we know he did because every time that God won't respond to him, he's surprised. What's wrong, God? Well, the fact you're hunting David down, that's what's wrong. Yeah, but what's wrong, really? What's wrong? He thought he'd repented. He was self-deceived. That ought to scare you. Or at least wake you up. Saul went through the motions of repentance, confession, prayer, religious activity, but he never dealt with the real issue. And that is he didn't fully trust God enough to fully surrender to him, and he didn't value God enough to be satisfied in him. He didn't know how to repent. Here's my question. Do you know how to repent? Do you know how to repent? Let me give you five signs that I see as a pastor, five signs that would tell me you're not repenting. Five things I can watch for, and if I see any one of these five, I know you haven't repented. Number one, rationalizations or blame shifting. Yeah, I do stuff wrong, but it's not totally my fault. I mean, if you had any idea the hand I've been dealt in life, well, of course I don't tithe. I haven't gotten near the money that I thought I'd always get in life. If you had any idea how bad my marriage was, that would justify my bad attitude toward my husband. If you understood how bad my marriage was, that would justify how I'm doing stuff outside of my marriage. If you had any idea how rough my life was, that would justify my selfishness. Yeah, I'm not really active in the church or serving God. That's because my life's really busy. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know enough about God yet to really feel like I can serve him. That's why I never respond to any of the calls that you give to get active in serving him. Rationalizations. Tells me you've never repented. Here's the second one. Unchanged behavior. Unchanged behavior. Real repentance is not shown. Real repentance is not shown in an emotional catharsis. Real repentance is shown in a changed life. Your mouth says you believe in Jesus. Great. What does your life say? Your baptism says you believe in Jesus. Great. What does your life say? The little card in the front of your Bible that your pastor put there telling what day you received Christ, that says you believe in Jesus. Awesome. What does your life say? Because if what your mouth says is different than what your life says, God looks at what your life says. Because the only reliable way to know whether or not you've truly believed in Jesus is to look at what your life says. And if your life has unchanged behavior, that means you haven't repented. Where there's been no change, there's no Jesus. There's no repentance. Unchanged behavior. And number three, the absence of godly sorrow. The absence of godly sorrow. Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, makes this statement. He says, godly grief 
Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, worldly grief produces death. He's talking about crying tears over sin that don't lead to salvation. I see this all the time as a pastor. People sit in my office and they just weep over what their marriage is like now and the mistakes they made to get it there. I can tell you how many men I've sat with and just cried their eyes out because their marriage had fallen apart because of the stupid things they'd done. And they wept over their mistakes. I've been with people who cried of regret over things they'd done. Worldly grief. There's a lot of reasons you can be tearful and cry. It may have to do with regret. It might have to do with the sorrow of being caught, guilt, shame, self-pity, embarrassment. None of those things are repentance toward God. None of them. Confession is not repentance. Just because you confess your sins doesn't mean you repented of them. You might just be getting something off your chest. Godly sorrow is sorrow about what your sin has done to God. How wicked it was and a resulting change of behavior. Godly sorrow results in a change of attitude toward God and a permanent change of life. Do not measure godly sorrow by the strength of the emotion. Measure godly sorrow by the effect of the change. Number four, conditional obedience is a sign you haven't repented. God, I'll do this, but this is what you got to do. God, I'll follow you, but I ain't going there. And don't tell me to do that. Number five, partial compliance. Partial compliance. You start obeying God in one area, but not all. Okay, I'll start being generous with my money. But I'm not going to obey you in these other areas. God, I'm going to start going to church, but I'm not going to obey the call that you put on my life. I'm going to mask my rebellion with religious activity, and I'm going to be partially compliant, but not fully. That's a sign you've never really repented, because there's no such thing as partially repenting to Jesus as Lord. Say you got a guy who um, has many adulterous affairs. In fact, so many different adulterous affairs, he's got a girl on every single day of the week, a different girl. So his wife confronts him about all these relationships and he's like okay i'm sorry i repent i'm not going to do it and so he goes back and gets rid of sunday girl tuesday girl thursday girl and friday girl he's like monday wednesday and saturday girl i'm keeping is that repentance no i mean that man has not changed anything he's just right he, you know, some of you hear that I, I bet you say this to me like why do you always like use adultery to illustrate that here's why there's two relationships where you should understand exclusivity one of them is lordship Right? One of them is, you can't have somebody that's partially Lord, but not all. But Americans don't get lordship because we don't surrender to anybody. I'll comply with the government, but, but dang it, you know, they ain't taking all my, uh-uh. I'm not submitting to the government. I'll, I'll, I'll give them what I got to do to stay out of it. We don't understand lordship. Right? So I have to use the only other relationship where we should understand exclusivity, and that is romance. Because most of us get that you can't be partially committed to somebody. You're either exclusive or you're not. And so if you're 99% faithful to your wife, but on three days out of the year, you sleep with another girl, that means you're wholly unfaithful. Right? So I use that illustration to show you the absurdity of saying that you're partially committed to Jesus as Lord. There's no such thing. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Small rebellion, even small rebellion, is a complete rejection of Jesus' lordship. You're either fully surrendered or you're fully in rebellion, and there's no middle ground. Okay? Saul didn't know how to repent. Saul did not know how to repent. Do you know how to repent? Write this down. Repentance is full trust in God and complete satisfaction with God that leads to unconditional surrender to God. Repentance is full trust in God and complete satisfaction with God that leads to unconditional surrender to God. Last lesson of Saul's life. Number three. Saul died the sinner's death. Saul died the sinner's death. In fact, 1 Samuel 31, hear me, is every sinner's death. Every sinner's death, 1 Samuel 31. He was hung up on a wall in shame. He was forsaken by God. The Philistines mocked God at his death because it looked like they conquered God's king. God's king was stripped of his armor and hung up for the whole world to see. But there is a glimmer, listen, as 1 Samuel ends in as dark a way possible. You know this. 
There's a glimmer of hope that is running through the background of 1 Samuel, and that is that simultaneous to Saul dying in the greatest act of humiliation and shame, God is preparing another king who is right now hidden in a wilderness, and none of you know where he is. Right? God is preparing his king, and ironically, it is only through Saul's death, which is Israel's ultimate shame, that God's real salvation, God's true king, God's hope is going to come to the throne you see all of this get this all of this is teaching you about how god's ultimate king capital k was going to take the throne you see jesus would come to the throne the exact same way that david did for jesus the part of saul would be played by you and me we all like saul had rejected god's lordship we refused to really trust him and to really delight in him more than we trusted in and delighted in ourselves. And so we're all condemned to die Saul's death. But Jesus, after having lived a perfect life, would die just like Saul did, didn't he? He was called king of the Jews. He was fastened to a tree. The enemies of God triumphed at his death. They stripped him of his armor and mocked him and said, God's king? This guy can't even save himself. Jesus died just like Saul did, but it wasn't for his sin and foolishness and rebellion. It was for ours. But through his death, that death, salvation came to us all. You see, just like it was with Saul, it was only through death that real salvation could come. The resurrection of Jesus was like David's ascent to the throne. At the resurrection, Jesus was crowned king of the universe, and he offered salvation to us all. But the only way that could work was by Jesus dying the sinner's death, Saul's death, for us. For David to take the throne... David, who was God's hope for Israel, Saul had to die for Jesus to take the throne, who was God's hope and salvation for us. He first had to die Saul's death for us. Jesus was killed like Saul so he could reign like David. I read an article this week by a rabbi who was explaining why Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He said the reason is because Jesus did not fulfill the one primary prophecy that we believed about the messiah and that is that he would bring peace on earth they said i mean look at it the last two thousand years have had more war and bloodshed than the two thousand years before jesus came here he was supposed to be the messiah was supposed to be peace on earth how could he possibly be the messiah and the guy went on in his article and he said he said we think it's you know cute that you christians like to point out that he was born in bethlehem and he was traded for 30 pieces of silver and from the tribe of judah and all the other prophecies you mentioned and those are all awesome and they're all coincidental because the one prophecy that really mattered and that is he would bring peace on earth jesus did not fulfill that one therefore he could not be the messiah ironically i heard bart ehrman say exactly the same thing in a debate Somebody asked him in this debate I was watching, they said, How, what would make you believe that Jesus really was the Messiah that he claimed to be? And Bart Ehrman's response was, had he brought the peace on earth that he promised? What Dr. Ehrman and the rabbi both don't understand is that the real problem in the world is not the Philistines. The real problem is not any kind of Goliath, the Goliath of famine or the Goliath of poverty or the Goliath of nuclear weapons. Listen, the real problem in the world is the heart of Saul that is in each one of us. Jesus had to come and put away the spirit of Saul that is in each one of us. Otherwise, there could never be peace on earth, no matter how good the government was or how ample the provisions were. What Dr. Ehrman and the rabbi want is another Saul. But God cannot build his kingdom and fill it with a bunch of people like Saul who don't want God to be king. Jesus could only bring the kingdom to earth by creating a race of people that have peace in here because they have peace with God. Jesus put away the Saul in us by dying Saul's death for us, which was our death. When we receive his death for us, that gives us peace with God, which gives us the hearts of the kingdom. We have peace first with God, then with each other, then with ourselves, then with our stuff. And love begins to replace jealousy. Contentment begins to replace selfishness. Generosity begins to replace stinginess. Mercy begins to replace hate. Before the world could be saved, you and I had to be saved. Before Jesus could solve the problems out there, he had to solve the problems in here. Before David could sit on the throne, Saul had to die. Before Jesus could literally reign on earth as the prince of peace, he had to bring peace to us. And the way that he did that is by killing Saul in us on the cross. 
He will bring the peace and prosperity we've always been hoping for, but first he has to end the rebellious soul-like spirit in each of us that are in this room. Have you ever received his peace in your heart? He died your death and paid your price and offered as a gift to all who will receive it. He has given himself to you so that you could know that you have peace with God, that there's nothing that causes God's displeasure to come at you because Jesus paid for it. He has shown you that he's trustworthy. He's shown you that you can give him his life. He's shown you that he's the most valuable possession that you could ever possess on earth. Have you ever received what he came and did on your behalf? Do you realize the tragedy of dying like Saul? Dying. Sitting in a lay now on your deathbed and looking back and seeing a life where you did some good things. Like Saul could look back and say, wow, Jonathan was awesome. And man, I, I won some battles. But then entering eternity to face a God that you're terrified of because you don't know what it means to have peace with him and you don't know what it means to really trust him and don't want to know what it means to feel the warmth and acceptance of his love in your soul. Do you realize how easy it is to be in a church like this one and never really have known God? To be in a church and feel like the big deal is getting involved and getting active and doing all kinds of stuff but never really have received The love of God for you, which says you, I pay for your sin. You can trust me. You're my child. I've removed every offense. Know me, receive me. Have you ever ever fallen into the arms of Jesus and rested there and cherished it and believed it for yourself personally? If not, I don't care how religiously active you are. There's a lot of you in here that are blinded to the fact that you haven't done that because you're so religiously active. Have you ever really known the grace and mercy of Jesus which is given as a gift to all who will receive it? You can receive it this morning if you never have. Would you bow your heads with me if you would and close your eyes. The Bible talks about knowing Jesus. It only uses two words to describe what that looks like. The two words are very easy. Repentance and faith. Repentance means that you surrender fully to Jesus as Lord with no conditions and no exceptions. Have you ever done that? If not, it's not words, but you could say to him something like this, Jesus, I surrender. No conditions. All of me I give to you. The second word is faith. That means that you believe that Jesus did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He died to pay your price and save you. And it's a gift that he offers To have faith means that you simply receive that as a gift. Have you ever received that? Have you ever received his love and offer to save you? If not, you could say something to God like this. Jesus, I receive the gift. Repentance, faith. Jesus, I surrender. Jesus, I receive. Father, I pray for those in this room and at all of our campuses who Or for the first time this weekend, receiving Jesus as their Savior. God, some of them I know have been very religiously active. But for the first time today, they've understood that Christianity is not what they do for you, but it's receiving what you've done for them. Father, I pray for those who are new to church and are maybe hearing this for the first time. And maybe some of them today have said, yes, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and they are surrendering to you. Maybe some of them are beginning to have questions. I pray that you would finish this work that you started in them. God, as we who are believers reflect on the fact that you are satisfied and you are trustworthy, help us to worship. I pray this and I ask in Jesus' name.